This is Play It Forward, a podcast where we tell sport differently. Today we hear the story of Moya Dodd, former Matilda, prominent gender equality advocate and one of Australia's leading female sports administrators. Moya served on the FFA board for 10 years, was one of the first women on the FIFA executive and in 2016 was named AFR's most influential woman of the year. I'm Tal, I'm here with Laura. Laura, you wanted to start us off with your favourite part of Moya's interview. Yeah, I thought it was important just to set the scene a bit. This is Moya explaining why it's so important that women are visible in sport and also that they're recognised from the earliest of ages for their abilities on the playing field. If you're a seven or eight year old girl and uh, people keep saying to you, oh, that's a pretty dress or doesn't your hair look nice or those are pretty shoes. If, if that's all, the, if they're the compliments you get from the world, then you're going to grow up thinking that the way to get ahead is to look nice. I mean, what other message does it send? But if you're out playing sport and they say, wow, that was a great goal, you really, you know, you really arrived at the right time and you put a nice accurate shot into the corner of the net, or, or you made a great save, then she gets the message that she's admired for what she can do, what she can, uh, how she can perform, not just how she looks. And that will alter the trajectory of her uh, ambitions and her performance over a lifetime. With those thoughts in mind, we took Moya back to where it all began. We asked her what it was like for her as a young girl, and how did she start playing football? Well, I always played Aussie rules at school, because that's the only kind of football there was, and I enjoyed it, and I loved kicking the ball. I loved running around, as girls do, I think. My brother had an Aussie rules ball with the stitching coming apart at one end and the bladder coming out of it, though I kind of took it over because he was no good at football, believe me. (laughs) Uh, I remember walking to school, mum gave me a string bag to carry it in, so I walked to school with holding this string bag and just volleying the ball in front of me all the way to school and home again. I played with the boys at um, well, whenever I could. Mostly it was just end-to-end kicking, it wasn't proper games, although it was probably like those early football games in whole villages where there was a, just a rumble, I think it was a bit like that at Woodville Primary. And uh, yeah, I, I, I remember being very annoyed when some well-intentioned policymaker in, this is Don Dunstan's South Australia in the 70s, decided that girls should have more access to the green space. So they declared that Tuesdays and Thursdays would be the girls' days on the Oval, while Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays were the boys' day on the Oval. They segregated us and I was always getting into trouble for going onto the Oval on boys' days and because that's all I wanted to do. It was a pity that mixed-gender football was not a thing at that time because I think I would have enjoyed it a lot. I changed schools when I was in grade six and a new kid came to the school from Sydney and he loved football, round ball football, and he was always trying to get us to play it and we, we didn't even have a round ball, we didn't even have a soccer ball in the school so we went hunting through the shed and we found a flat basketball and we all kicked that around for a while and I you know I couldn't really see the attraction actually it's not it's not fun kicking a flat basketball I didn't really get it until we got a television and I saw the game as it's meant to be played saw it played professionally uh, and there wasn't much football on TV there was one hour a week maybe two if you were lucky and counted replays um, that's another reason why football was suppressed in this country for a long time because you couldn't see it uh, and and then I understood how it was meant to be played and it was, I was fascinated by it. We got the English First Division, so there was Match of the Day. There was also Star Soccer was on sometimes. So I'd watch 
the English First Division. That was all there was to see. I remember seeing the FA Cup final on the TV schedule. I had no clue what the FA Cup final was or what it meant, but I begged my dad to stay up late and watch it, so we stayed up late and watched it together. And uh, I remember it was Liverpool against Manchester United, 1977. Liverpool lost 2-1, which I thought was an outrage because I thought they'd been the better team. And that confirmed me as a Liverpool supporter. I didn't find a team for a while. This is, we're talking Adelaide in the 70s. So most of the clubs at that time were ethnically based clubs. None of them were, you know, for half Chinese kids that I knew of. Uh, so you didn't naturally find, find a place to play. I, I wanted to play. I would kick the ball against the wall all the time. I remember borrowing books from the public library on, on football, you know, techniques of kicking and, and reading them. Uh, but it was, it was kind of a solitary pursuit. But I, I used to read the paper every day for news of football and there wasn't much, you can imagine. But one day I was reading the results and I found that there was a women's soccer league and I was amazed by this because I just didn't know such a thing existed and I looked at the names of all the teams and I discovered one of them was Port Adelaide which was within cycling range of my house and I took myself off and uh, I think my parents took me actually the first time and went along and joined up so I was uh, I think 13 before I played in a proper full-size game with you know strips and a referee and corner flags and nets which I thought was just the best thing ever. There were a few teenagers in the team I was the youngest but mostly they were adults they were 20 somethings you know they had boyfriends they drank alcohol they smoked cigarettes they swore so it was a whole baptism um, well it was a whole lot of fun I mean I, I, I loved it I played for Port Adelaide for a few years that was my local team I went to university went to Adelaide Uni and played for the university team and that enabled me to take another step I was able to play in the best division with some of the better players and then the state team came along actually the first year I got selected in the state team we didn't go anywhere because they, they couldn't raise the money Essentially, you had to pay to go. Unless you have enough people who've got enough money to pay, then your team doesn't go. And that's what happened to South Australia in 1983. It was the first year I was in the squad. So that meant I had to wait another year for the Nationals to come around in 1984 uh, when I was picked in the state team, and that was my first taste of representative football. It was in Canberra, and there was a debate about whether players should have to share a bed with another player because you know the accommodation costs were significant. I remember there was a ceiling fan in the middle of our cabin and uh, on which we would tie our clothes to dry them and turn the ceiling fan on <laughs> because that was actually the best way to dry things. I mean, we did our own washing. We had matches almost every day. I think we played nine matches in 10 days and somebody, would, a, a pair of players would be assigned to wash the strip, which got progressively tighter as the week went on and went through the hot dryer. So we had to wash our stuff personally. So it was, you know, just a race to the bathroom sink and you try and get your socks washed and, and everything else. And then you'd say, where are we going to dry this in a small motel room with four people in it? And we came up with this ingenious idea that if we tied it all to the ceiling fan and turned on the ceiling fan, then it would just spin around in the middle of the room and we'd get our washing dry, which we did. It worked quite well. Although at one point I remember the coach knocking on the door to come and tell us something. And we opened the door and he came in and he, he almost lost an eye on somebody's bra strap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he beat a hasty retreat. I want to get any underwear injuries. 
Let's move on from underwear injuries, however funny they may seem, and talk about the Matildas. Moya played for the Matildas for a decade. She was at one stage vice-captain, and it was a time when there was very little money available for women in sport. We asked Moya what it was like playing for the national team and what it was like preparing for competitions with so few resources available. We didn't always have a training camp before we went away. Sometimes you just met at the airport and that was a cost thing as much as anything else. And one year the track suits were very slow to arrive. I think Heather was sweating on whether they were going to show up at all before before we had to get on the plane and and these boxes showed up at the airport so there was this mad scramble it was like seagulls over a packet of chips anyway we all got our tracksuits and then they handed out the little crest with the emu and the kangaroo on it and they said you're going to have to sew these on i mean who knew who knew that i would be called upon to to sew in order to play in the national team. It was a mess, let me tell you. Some were higher, some were lower, some were not quite level, some had uh, different coloured cotton. It was like diabolical. And that was the last time we were asked to sew. Let's move from the shambles of sewing badges onto uniforms to what it was like for Moya playing in the first ever FIFA Women's World Tournament in China. I just remember being there sort of wide-eyed and thinking, this is the beginning of something big. And I think everyone in that tournament, including the other teams, we, we all felt as players a responsibility to put on a really good show because this was the first time FIFA had kind of looked down from its um, from on the mountain and bothered to organise a women's football tournament. It was 1988. There were 12 teams. It was by invitation. I'm not sure who manoeuvred the invitation for Australia, but all credit to them, they did a good job because <laughs> we got invited. And we knew that we had to put on a good show because if it was good enough, if the standard of play was good enough, then FIFA might organise another one. It was a successful pilot tournament for the Women's World Cup and importantly for the record, the Matildas beat Brazil 1-0 in that tournament. It was a huge result. So we asked Moya to reflect on what it was like for the Matildas coming home after that tournament. I think it gave us some credibility uh, to be able to go to a world tournament and beat Brazil. But, you know, you came home to this sort of pothole system where you go back to your club, playing on a Sunday morning on a poor pitch, training under some bad lights twice a week with your club team in the mud. You've gone and eyeballed the best players in the world and then you come back to an environment where you want to improve but the pathway to do so is is not that clear. They say every, every generation stands on the shoulders of the last. There's no doubt in my mind that my generation of players suffered lifelong economic disadvantage from playing for Australia. Not only did they have to shell out the cost to play, but they, they could not build careers in parallel, or if they did, they were, they were building them much more slowly than they would if they were not playing for Australia. So the price of playing for the national team was not only the cash cost that you had to pay at the door, but it was also the cost to your career. And I, I don't think any of them would think about it that way. I think, I think most of us look back and think we had a fantastic opportunity and uh, to experience something that's priceless. But if you want to add it up, I think you'll find that the the NPV of their economic loss from playing for Australia is a pretty big number because it, 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 it's, it's extrapolated over your whole working life. 
It is really interesting, I think, to reflect on that long-term financial sacrifice that the early Matildas were making so that they could play for Australia. And for Moya, of course, that wasn't the end of it. She tried to do something about it. That's right. Moya spent the last decade of her life in football leadership as an administrator, often as one of the very few women at the table. We asked her how her journey as a football administrator began with FFA. I remember uh, in 2007, on my birthday actually, I was turning 42 and the phone rang and it was Tom Simone. And I'm like, Tommy, hey, what's up? You short on midfielders or, you know, like <laughs> getting a little long in the tooth now, but I've still got some boots. Um, but he, he was ringing to tell me that there were there would be vacancies on the FFA board and that my name had come up and, you know, he was kind of, he was a messenger, I guess. You know, and then a day or two later, I was in Frank Lowy's office talking to him about football and at that point I discovered it wasn't just the FFA board he was thinking of it was also our opportunities in Asia because uh, Australia had just joined Asia and there was a chance to put someone forward to one of the women's quota positions in the AFC and he was uh, keen to explore that possibility as well. So one thing led to another and I finished up on a plane to Kuala Lumpur having absolutely no idea what I was in for, I might say. And it went from there. I mean, you know, you just never know what's around the next corner in football. You really have no idea what you could be walking into when you hop off a plane in, in a football environment. I felt at the time that both those things had come along a bit early for me. But I remember being reminded by mentors at the time that, you know, you can't dictate when opportunities will come to you. You know, if, I mean, if you're running into the far post and there's a ball coming, you're thinking, oh, God, you know, if only that ball came next week, you might be able to reach it. Well, no, you know, it's there. You're either, you're either going to get your head to it or you're not. So at least give it a red hot go. I spent 10 years on the FFA board. It's interesting thinking back when I started there wasn't even a W League so um, that now feels like a long time ago uh, and it's good to look back and feel like we made some real progress in that time. Uh, you know there was also a lot of hard work, there was a lot of ups and downs being on a board um, and you know looking back now I, I feel like I gave it my best shot uh, which I think is all you can do. It's like you come off the park and you think well I, uh, I played the best game I could. Let's move from FFA to FIFA. Moya was, of course, one of the first women to be appointed to the FIFA Executive Committee, now known as the Council, in its more than 100 years of existence. We asked Moya to tell us about how her role at FIFA came about. FIFA decided to create one seat for uh, a quota seat for a woman, and they did that in 2012 and immediately co-opted uh, Lydia Nascara into that seat. I think Blatter realised, to his credit, that it'd be a cold day in hell before that happened organically. And he was an advocate of it. He actually was quite an advocate of bringing women around the table. He, of course, he knew that it would play well to the public to do that. But I think he also genuinely believed it and uh, had to debate with colleagues who were much less interested in the idea in order to make it happen. But of course he was he was in a position to make it happen and he used that position to make sure that it did happen. So that role was created. Lydia was co-opted for a year and then had to go to an election. I was Asia's candidate. I came second in that election, but the second and third place getters were co-opted onto the FIFA Executive Committee for a year. 
while Lydia took a four-year seat. Uh, and that gave me a year to do all I could. I mean, I, I was determined not to waste a day of it. I, I was subsequently extended in that role twice, so I had in all three years of a non-voting position on the FIFA Executive Committee, during which there were quite some adventures. The first thing I did when I got on was to ask uh, then President Blatter whether I could head a task force on women's football because then you've got the basis on which to do something. Otherwise, you're sitting on a committee, nodding or shaking your head or maybe saying something occasionally, but you can't really have much impact. I mean, I, I learned quickly, of course, that, that decisions might, might appear to be taken in the room, but actually they're shaped way before that. Uh, so your real opportunity to influence anything came from getting to know everybody that you could, trying to understand the system of how decisions were made, and engaging as much as possible with those systems and with those people. Uh, so I did travel a lot. You know, if I was asked to give a talk somewhere, I gave the talk. I mean, within reason, but, you know, if I was asked to go to a meeting, I went to the meeting. And I was on a plane a lot, but I felt that it was, I had a year and I wanted to make it a year of maximum engagement. So we got the task force up and running and we wrote a set of principles for the development of women's football, the 10 principles, and you can to this day Google FIFA 10 principles and they will pop up as the first answer. What we wanted to do was create like a, a, a hook to hang your hat on for every women's football champion in every country around the world by passing some principles and guidelines that they could point to them and say, FIFA says you should do this, therefore, you know, give me the resources, give me the opportunity to do that in my home federation. And that was, that was really important. Um, it did impact the way that federations implemented their programs. One of those principles was that you should have women in participating in decision-making and that in principle there should be at least one woman, a minimum of one woman on every executive committee of every federation in the world. Now a lot of them still were all male of course and, and still are, but to have FIFA, the FIFA Congress pass that as a principle was quite significant and of course I had to get it through the EXCO first to have them agree to it and you know those sorts of things FIFA has an amazing it's the power of the pulpit Mary Harvey calls it the power of the pulpit uh, if FIFA says something people listen because it's FIFA that's saying it and within the environment that exists within those member associations now 211 member associations of FIFA they look to what FIFA says if FIFA says that you should have a plan for women's football and you should make football as accessible to girls as it is to boys, which is the first two principles, then people listen to that. It, it gives uh, a, an authority and a credibility to that view of the world and it comes from the top. Moya clearly achieved a great deal for women's football in her time on the FIFA Executive Committee and this was during a period when FIFA was often in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. So we asked Moya, what was it like working in an organisation that was so distracted by scandal? Uh, well, FIFA's an adventure. I mean, I'm still on one of the uh, committees in FIFA, not the, not the council itself, but on one of the committees. So I still feel a part of the organisation. I still do get people kind of rolling their eyes when you say that you're involved in FIFA. And certainly when a crisis began to unfold in well, really 2014, 2015, the controversy with um, people resigning and then of course the arrests, 
uh, you know, it's not that great a thing to have on your CV, you know. I have a member of the FIFA Executive Committee. It was considered a byword for entitlement and uh, a closed system of corruption. But I, I, I felt that it was an environment where I could make something of difference. I'd already worked on the hijab campaign before that, so I knew that it was possible to make change from the inside. I'd seen that occur, and it gave me some confidence that if I went in and um, gave it a red-hot go, then maybe I could make a difference from the inside. And I also felt that the opportunity to work on the inside was so rare and so precious for a woman to have the chance to do, to do that at the, on, on the, at the highest levels of FIFA that I couldn't say no. It was a very compelling um, opportunity. It was precious and it was rare and I, I should make the best of it. I should make the most of it. I shouldn't waste it. Moya certainly didn't waste her time at FIFA and it can't be said that she's wasted much time afterwards. She's still on a million boards. She's an executive committee member of the AFC, the Asian Football Confederation. She's a member of the IK as the International Council for Arbitration for Sport. What a mouthful. <laughs> she's also involved with a number of not-for-profits. Barefoot to Boots is one, but she's also now the chair of Common Goal, which is a movement of football players, managers and supporters who each pledge 1% of their annual salaries for football development programs all around the world. It's a really important program. There is, of course, so much more that could be shared about Moya. Her ridiculously impressive travel regime. I have never met anyone who travels as much as Moya. I think it's just really lucky she can sleep on planes. There is also, of course, so much more that could be said about her huge influence on the world of football. But unfortunately, we are almost out of time for this episode of the Play It Forward podcast. So let's end the episode the way we began, with some choice words from Moya Dodd. One of my favourite sayings is from Nelson Mandela, and he said, it always seems impossible until it's done. And he should know, you know, that the, the miracle that was South Africa's transition uh, from apartheid to a democracy, of which he was the head, the elected leader, it was just extraordinary. I mean, he did that via 27 years in jail. And when a guy like that says, it always seems impossible until it's done, it makes you realise that there really is nothing that is impossible. If you're prepared to put the, your effort in and be persistent and principled in how you go about it, it's surprising and, it, and it's extraordinary what kind of change can be achieved. Thank <laughs> you.